0: Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. On today's episode, you'll hear from the historian and lawyer Sarah Cockrell, whose latest book is a biography of the 12th century English queen Eleanor of Aquitaine. Sarah was in conversation with fellow medieval historian Dan Jones, and here's how their discussion went.
3: Sarah Cockerell, thank you very much for taking the time to talk about uh, one of the great figures from medieval history, Um, a woman who I know has captured the imaginations, the hearts, and the minds of many, many listeners over the years and readers of the magazine. I'm sure a lot of our listeners will know the answer to this question but then I'm sure a lot won't. So can you just tell us very briefly who was Eleanor of Aquitaine?
4: Right, well thank you for um, coming to talk to me today. It is so fascinating and thrilling to talk about Eleanor of Aquitaine who is often called the most famous woman in medieval history. She was born the daughter of the Duke of Aquitaine. She became the heiress to the Duchy of Aquitaine when she was very young. She was then married to the King of France And then after that, marriage went horribly wrong. After they'd been married for some time and gone on crusade, she married Henry II of England. Um, By him, she had a wide variety of children, which was interesting considering that she'd been divorced for being barren, um, including amongst those children Henry the Young King, Richard the Lionheart, King John, and also some very remarkable daughters. Um, During the course of her marriage to Henry, things went slightly badly wrong. She is said to have helped her sons to rebel against Henry. She ended up in prison for 15 years, um, only coming out when Henry was dead. And then her son, Richard, allowed her essentially to rule England on his behalf. She then also conducted a number of diplomatic forays, including going to visit him in Sicily, uh, going to visit her daughter in Castile, and fetching from Castile, a granddaughter of hers, to marry the King of France. And she died finally at the age of 80 um, in the Abbey of Fontreville.
3: So we're not exaggerating or... um Or romanticizing or mythologizing necessarily when we describe Eleanor as a remarkable character in the Middle Ages, you know, spanning the 12th into the early 13th centuries. But I can see from the way you're you're slightly moving your eyebrow at me (laughs) that uh, there is a great deal of romanticizing, mythologizing uh, that has gone on around Eleanor. So uh, as, as a way of getting into that, I suppose, could you tell me why you decided to write about Eleanor? There have been lots of biographies of her over the years. I can think of my shelves at home and I've got Ralph Turner's, but, you know, very dense. I think it's in the Yale series. Um, Helen Castor devoted a quarter of her she-wolves to Eleanor. So what drew you to Eleanor of Aquitaine and um, what is there to add to this story?
4: So I have read, I think, every biography of Eleanor going and I've loved pretty much all of them But I found every single one was lacking in some respect, even with great respect to Ralph Turner, um, his. And I really wanted to see if I could have a better shot at it, particularly in view of the fact that the last biographies were basically in the the noughties. Uh, So Alison Weir is early 2000s, um, Ralph Turner is 2009. And there's been a huge amount of very serious scholarship since then, which has challenged a number of the views that people brought to the earlier biographies. So I wanted to see if one could work that scholarship into what we already knew about Eleanor and whether a new picture would emerge.
3: And of course, you've written about another famous Eleanor from the Middle Ages before.
4: Yes, I previously wrote about Eleanor of Castile. That was a very different thing because pretty much nobody knew who Eleanor of Castile was, and whenever I said I was writing about her, people would just say who. Whereas when I write about, say, I'm writing about Eleanor of Aquitaine, people say ah yes, and then tell me something which I then have to tell them isn't true.
3: <laughs> right. In order to myth bust Eleanor of Aquitaine, because I think that's what we should do here. Um, let's get to the, the the heart of who Eleanor was. Uh, what we can and can't know about her, what, it, what are our misconceptions um, about her. Let's start with the real basics. Where's Aquitaine?
4: So, good question, um, because people tend to say Aquitaine is in the south. Eleanor was a creature of the south. And that's of France. Of France, yes. Um, and that's slightly wrong. Aquitaine was a vast county. In fact, Eleanor's lands covered... Poitou, Aquitaine, and Gascony. Her lands were far bigger than the territorial lands controlled by the King of France. Now, some of those lands, yes, were in the south, but the real power base of her family was in Poitou, which is actually not really in the south at all. It's on the borders of Anjou. So this idea of her as a creature of the south is something of a misconception.
3: So all of our images of Eleanor, you know, born at the beginning of the 12th century, um, you know, to a, a romantic kind of southern French dynasty, speaking, you know, a different dialect and language from those. How, to, to what extent can we be sure about, about that?
4: So the, the conventional view has been Eleanor, creature of the south, speaker of the Languedoc, troubadour princess. There is no evidence as to what language she spoke There is a lot of evidence that she didn't actually um, have any extensive role in patronizing the troubadours. The pendulum has swung in terms of scholarship. A number of scholars nowadays say she probably didn't speak the Languedoc at all. I think that's probably going too far. Her grandfather wrote in the Southern French Languedoc because he was the first of the troubadours himself. So she was probably familiar with it. She probably spoke both. But this idea of her as being essentially sort of like a stick of rock, a southern, um, southern person through and through, I think we can pretty much dismiss that.
3: So fill out what we do know about her family then, and um, you know what what is the nature of these troubadour dukes? What you know what are, what part did they played in? Let's locate this in the early 12th century, going back into the late 11th century. What is the nature of her family insofar as we do know about it?
4: So she had an absolutely fascinating family. Um, Going way back, she descends from a saint. Uh, She's got a a wonderful roster of really uh, feisty uh, ladies who were her ancestresses. But the really dominant figure that one tends to think about is her grandfather, William the Troubadour. He was the first Troubadour poet, um, which was a quite remarkable thing from somebody who was a duke. Uh, he developed this this sort of partially um, rather sexual, but later on rather romantic form of poetry, which he had got slightly from other regions, slightly from when he was on crusade, possibly with Spanish influences, and also with influences from the northern chansons de Guest. but. He then um, parlayed that into a distinctively southern form of poetry and music. He died, however, when Eleanor was only about two years old. Um, His influence on her would have been probably quite small, although what he had done in developing poetry then goes to influence other courts across the south of France. Uh, Her own father was somebody who was much more of a Um, He was much more interested in battle and religion than poetry. So her immediate background is not so steeped in that troubadour culture as we've sometimes been led to believe.
3: Now, you said about two years old, I think, uh, Mm -hmm. just in passing then. There's a long debate about what Eleanor's year of birth was I mean, can you can you shed any light on that? I think that the date's usually given are 11.22, 11.24. Yeah. yeah. I mean, are we any closer to knowing the answer to no. that? No, and, right. okay. and we
4: never will be. Um, there are different dates given at different points in history. All of the dates that are given for her birth are are first given after her death, considerably after her death. I've taken 11.24 because it is the first, the earliest time that anybody gives a birth date for her and so it's nearest in time to when she lived it's in a relatively reliable source so i've gone with that but the truth is that we don't know i think there are other reasons for thinking that 1124 is probably right in terms of the fact that she wasn't married or engaged to be married at the time when her father died and that is more consistent with her being 13 rather than 15 mm. but it's still very arguable.
3: But so then let's fast forward to the time that her, her father dies, when she is 13 slash 15, probably 13. She inherited, effectively, Aquitaine. Yes. Now, we tend to think of the Middle Ages, if we think about them, as a block, which people often do as a time when female rule was scorned when the idea of a queen was abhorrent you know when uh, you know an institutionalized misogyny was built into society all the way up to um inheritance of crowns and and dukedoms and and other noble titles how come she was able to inherit aquitaine
4: well there's I know probably about three factors in that. Firstly, people tend to overstate the barriers to women's inheritance in that particular portion of medieval history. The early medieval period was not nearly so antipathetic to women in power as the later medieval period was. Um, Secondly, in the southern portions of Europe, there was, I think, and indeed in the Holy Land, um, there was a greater acceptance of women inheriting and exercising power. So shortly, uh, shortly before Eleanor was born, um, the all the Spanish kingdoms were being ruled by Queen Araca in her own right. Uh, at the same time as Eleanor is exercising power in Aquitaine, there is another heiress just across the uh, the other end of the Pyrenees from her, Ermengarde of Narbonne, exercising power in her own right. When Eleanor goes on crusade, her hostess is Queen Melisande of Jerusalem, Melisande the Magnificent. Um, So you've got that there, and then you don't have a viable alternative to inherit. So she was just about at the right time, she was in the right place, and she was in the right circumstances.
3: However... She gets married at a very young age, Uh, partially, I suppose, to um, mitigate for the fact that a woman ruling this large duchy might be problematic?
4: Well, um, I think Professor Nicholas Vincent once described Eleanor as a walking title deed, and I think that's a fabulous (laughs) description. If you think of it, she is this 13-year-old title deed to essentially half of the French landmass, um, she is not safe allowed out alone. She has to be married because if she isn't married, somebody is frankly going to take her by force, marry her by force and exercise power through her. So when, she, uh, when her father dies, she is locked up in a castle in Bordeaux until a marriage can be arranged for her. And she doesn't see her future husband until he reaches Bordeaux because she simply can't be allowed out to go anywhere. Um, until she is safely married.
3: Now, tell us about this this husband. Her first, uh, the first of her two royal husbands. Um, she marries the heir to, and then the, the 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 king of France, Louis the Seventh. Mm. Tell us about Louis the Seventh. You know the famous quote, uh, always attributed to Eleanor, that he's more of a monk than a king. Yeah. Are you going to myth-bust this? Oh,
4: no way. No way. I mean, that's what he was trained to be, poor boy. He was never supposed to inherit. His older brother, Philippe, was supposed to inherit. Philippe had a nasty accident with a rogue pig, which led to his death. And so poor Louis was hauled out of the Abbey of Saint-Denis, where he was being uh, educated, and told, OK, you are not going to be a cardinal or bishop. Uh, You are going to be king. And uh, I think there is reason to believe that, having been trained to um, celibacy in his childhood, he ha- he had real difficulties with being married.
3: So that's an important point, and and um, and one I think that maybe we're going to develop as we talk about this phase of Eleanor's life. As we know from later in Eleanor's life, when she was married to Henry II of England, she had many, many children, large number of children, boys and girls, while married to Louis. She has two daughters. Mm-hmm. Not much use if you're looking for a future king of, of France. Um, so you're putting this down to the sense that that Louis's training as you know for a career in the church, in which celibacy is an important factor, is is a major element in them not having children.
4: Well, I accept this is wildly speculative, but uh, we know that Louis was young and healthy. He lives to a um, A reasonable age. Eleanor lives to a very good age and she has lots and lots of children. And yet, when they are together, they only manage to have two children. On each occasion when she conceives, they are essentially given specific blessing by the church. It's a very odd situation. After a number of years of marriage, Eleanor was in a difficult position because she hadn't had a child, which was her role. And she spoke to Bernard of Clairvaux, later Saint Bernard, and asked him to help her with her marriage. And he provided a specific blessing to her and Louis. And it's very shortly after that that she conceives for the first time. The second child is conceived after a papal blessing on the way home from the crusade. It seems like a bit of an odd coincidence. It may not be, but it certainly looks like it. (laughs)
3: One of those rare men who can only do it after a blessing by the church. Um, something I don't think I can think of another example of in in history, off the top of my head. <laughs> let's talk. So let's talk about Eleanor and Louis together. Yes. And and maybe let's focus on their their most famous moment together, which occurs in the 1140s when the two of them go off on crusade. Now at this point they've been married for quite a, quite a while. Talk us through the background to um, to Eleanor of Aquitaine going on crusade, which is not necessarily. Uh, an ordinary activity for a queen in the 12th century?
4: It wasn't an ordinary activity for a king because, of course, um, there was a considerable amount of disquiet when Louis said that he wanted personally to go on a crusade. It would be something new for actually crowned heads to go on crusade at that stage. And, of course, they had no heir and the idea of him putting himself at risk was unwelcome to his counsellors. But in part because there had been women on crusade in the first crusade, Uh, there continued to be women and men visiting the Holy Land between the first and second crusade. And the fact that Eleanor and Louis felt, I think, by this stage, probably that they needed as many blessings as they could get on their marriage to help them to conceive, it probably seemed like a very sensible thing for her to go with him. Um certainly also, why shouldn't she, just as much as many of the people who wanted to visit the Holy Land in the interim between the two crusades, have wanted to go and see it? And, of course, she had family there. The crusade was effectively summoned by her uncle, Raymond of Antioch. So she had multiple reasons for wanting to go.
3: Be that as it may, the, the second crusade called after the fall of Odessa in 1144, um, designed to follow in the footsteps of mm. the First Crusaders, which, uh, as it turned out, fate, or, you know, near fatally so, or fatally so for many participants, is a, a, an incredible undertaking for man, woman, king, queen, anybody yeah. going on it. Tell us a little bit about the, the rigours of, of the Second Crusade and and what they set out to do.
4: Yes. So... This was one of the things which actually really struck me when I I started to write about this period in Eleanor's life. I think people have not really given sufficient credit to her and the the other people who went on crusade for the enormous rigour of the journey. Um, they, They set off, and it should be an easy start, following the Emperor Conrad. But the Emperor Conrad's army has gone first, And there is effectively no food because they've taken it all ahead of them. Uh, So even on what should have been the simple bit of the journey, they are running into difficulties in keeping their um, baggage train supplied, keeping people fed, watered, clothed. Then they get to Constantinople and there are various difficulties there because um, the the emperor of Constantinople is not regarded with uh, perfect love and charity by a number of the French crusaders. They have a little bit of comfort and luxury there, but then as soon as they cross, um, they are faced with a similar dilemma to that faced by the first crusaders how to get across this massive land mass inhabited by people who basically want to kill you.
3: And we're talking about Asia Minor here. We're so talking the, the, about- the journey, the portion of the journey, I mean, the journey in itself is incredible. Imagine tra- traveling mainly by foot from Paris to, to Constantinople, yes. modern Istanbul, But even be that as it may. From Constantinople, they're heading towards northern Syria, which entails yes. crossing the entire territorial landmass of modern Turkey on foot when it's mainly populated by people who want to kill you.
4: Yes. I mean, it, it goes in stages. They start out from France and you can see that they might have stopped at abbeys and so forth for the start, for the beginning of the journey. Then sort of the latter parts of the journey down to Constantinople, they're probably camping in not very nice circumstances. So Eleanor probably did actually, yes, camp in a tent, which is an interesting thought. And then you get into Asia Minor and you're camping in even more desperately exposed um, tough physical conditions, even without, as you say, people constantly trying to kill you. Um, As soon as they cross into Asia Minor, pretty much they find that the Emperor Conrad's army has been destroyed, having gone a little bit ahead of them. The Emperor Conrad comes and joins them, terribly wounded, and has effectively to be shipped back to Constantinople, where he's nursed back to health by Manuel Komnenos, And so Eleanor and Louis then end up trying to tiptoe round the edge of Asia Minor, which is a massive journey. And uh, the land that they have to cover is is incredibly inhospitable. Um, And then, of course, they never know when they're going to be attacked, which they were repeatedly. She will have seen people dead at the side of the road. She will have seen people killed. And this is all before we get to Mount Cadmus.
3: And tell us about Mount Cadmus. So after the French Crusaders on the Second Crusade have sort of inched their way, I suppose, southeast mm-hmm. around, the, around the southwest corner of Asia Minor, um, they're picking their way increasingly, uh, in an increasingly bedraggled fashion uh, a, across this huge landmass. What occurs at Mount Cadmus?
4: So you've got a picture it's a big army. There are thousands and thousands of people. It's broken, as is is traditional, into the vanguard, the rear guard, and the central section. The central section has probably got most of the baggage, most of the women, most of the more exposed people within it. Louis at the back, sort of protecting the rear of the army. At the front is his uncle, um, Amadeus of Morienne and one of Eleanor's principal vassals, Geoffrey of Runcon. And they are supposed to get partway up Mount Cadmus, almost to the top, pitch a camp, wait for the rest of the army to catch up. Quite what happens as to why this doesn't happen, nobody knows. None of the accounts are clear. Um, It's fair to say that the people who went on crusade with an idea of leaving a record were so dispirited that they gave up. So we pick this up from later accounts. Um, On on the whole, there is a a brief account by Louis' uh, chronicler, Odo of Douai, but he doesn't give perfect detail. So somehow the vanguard gets ahead, goes over the ridge of the mountain, um, then the attack comes onto the... Exposed middle section of the army, people are killed, are jumping off cliffs, um, are hiding wherever they can while the attack goes on. Odo himself runs downhill to get Louis and the and the rear guard, who eventually come up and themselves come under attack. Louis only escapes by climbing up a tree and cowering there till it gets dark. And we have no idea what's happened to Eleanor during this time.
3: So the sources on Eleanor at this time are silent?
4: Absolutely silent. So we can
3: only in that case construct what she may or may not have seen through, through yes. the more general accounts of the Second Crusade. Okay, let's fast forward a little bit through the Second Crusade um, and, and hone in on the bit of it that that is most often repeated about Eleanor. Because... After the terrible experiences in Asia Minor, Second Crusaders, or that portion of them that survive, make it into Syria. Uh, the, the plan has been to go and get Edessa. Forget that, Edessa's long gone. Plan changed, hit Damascus. That or, That's a total mm. disaster as well. In the midst of all this, Eleanor comes in for some quite stiff criticism from chroniclers, including, I think, William of Tyre, writing later, who uh, accused her of something very dodgy that's going to stick with her for the rest of her life. Can you tell us a little bit about that and, and how much of what we think we know about Eleanor during the Second Crusade is or is not true?
4: So, as I've said, the only chronicler who was actually embedded with the French portion of the Second Crusade gave up writing when he got to Antioch. So what happened at Antioch, one might say was a bit like Vegas, stays in, stays in Antioch, <laughs> um, At Antioch was Eleanor's uncle Raymond. Now, how well she knew him before he left Aquitaine, we don't know. He was probably a young man when he left, so she would have known him only for a very few years when she was a very small girl, but he was her uncle. We know that in Antioch, she and he got on like a house on fire and talked a lot. We know this from John of Salisbury, to whom Eleanor and Louis gave their accounts fairly shortly after the event. The story, as it's later told, is that Eleanor had an affair with Raymond, but that comes not from John of Salisbury. It comes first from much later chroniclers. William of Tyre says something which is ambiguous, uh, which could mean that she was disobedient to Louis, which she was, or it could mean that she had an affair with Raymond. But that that statement is then picked up by later chroniclers and people say that Eleanor had an affair with Raymond. I think from what John of Salisbury says, it's clear there was gossip because she was spending so much time with him. But there seems to be absolutely no evidence that anything improper went on. What she did do, though, was she asked for a divorce from Louis. And Louis was absolutely gutted and uh, was told this would be a huge embarrassment, and that he couldn't let this happen. And so he abducted Eleanor, and took her away by force from Antioch.
3: That's extraordinary. So,
4: well, it would cause gossip, wouldn't it? It would it? cause <laughs>
3: gossip. And uh, and I think, as a sort of uh, you know footnote, this is classic William of Tyre, you know, great chronicler of the Crusades who loves to have it both ways, if if you see what I mean. So he makes this statement, and he sort of says. Mm-hmm. something was going on, there, you know, so that you can read it either way. And this seems to have been his, his intent, to, to gossip without actually doing the gossiping. Very William of Tyre. Now, from Antioch, Northern Syria, Louis has to sort of almost physically drag his mm. wife away from her uncle for whatever reason. Um, this has has stuck with her forever, basically, hasn't it? This, this sort of, this, this beginning of a, you know, a scandalous reputation, if you like. I mean, do you think it's merited?
4: I don't. Uh, when you look at what John of Salisbury says, and he is the person who heard both Eleanor's side of the story and Louis' side of the story very, very shortly after the crusade finished, he says nothing other than that she spoke to Raymond a lot and that there was a lot of gossip, and that Louis was unhappy about her spending time with Raymond. Louis was famously uh, jealous. Where it, when it came to Eleanor, he loved her uh, with a childlike devotion. It's often said. So, so no, I don't think it's merited. But mud sticks. Mm-hmm.
3: And, uh, and and by the same token, childlike devotion doesn't butter any parsnips when it comes to producing uh, no. to the crown. So again, let's let's move move forward. The, the Second Crusade, big disaster. Louis returns home not with his reputation or his finances uh, entirely uh, burnished no. by the experience, but with Eleanor by his side. They stop off and, and see the Pope, you know, on yep. on and, on their way home.
4: And they return with her pregnant.
3: And they return with her pregnant. Shortly after that, however they're no longer an item, as yes. we might say. What happens? I mean, I thought the Second Crusade was supposed to be their sort of marriage counselling and it <laughs> produces a child. Is, you know, what, what's, what's the problem?
4: Well, during the course of the Crusade, clearly things went sufficiently wrong between them that Eleanor took that extreme uh, course of saying, while you know, thousands of miles away from home, that's it, I want a divorce, it's all over. And... She relied on their close relationship in blood, consanguinity, because they had um, relations who were, the church would say, too close. So I think she wanted out of the marriage. She was probably very upset that she ended up pregnant. He, of course, would have hoped that this second baby would be a boy. But when the second baby wasn't a boy, all the people who were around him who were saying that she was no good at providing heirs would appear to be justified. Um, They had now been married for a good period of time, over 10 years, coming up for 15 years, in fact, and nothing. So he, I think, felt he had no alternative if he wanted an heir to divorce her or get an annulment, to put it more technically, and that's what happened. Still to
0: come on the History Extra podcast...
4: So we see Eleanor in all her different roles as mother, as politician, as wielder of power, as patron. All of it comes together in her final years into this rather wonderful flowering.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all.
2: That's BetterHelp H E L P dot com slash history extra.
3: In retrospect, um, a decision that would have far-reaching consequences, certainly in the in the medium term, let's say, for the Kingdom of France, the the Kingdom of England, you know, mm. the, the possessions in between, because very shortly after having the marriage annulled with Louis, Ellen is married to the sort of rising star of of Western Europe. Can you shed some light on them? Again, we we've, we've, we read sort of half-romanticised um, versions of, of at what point you met Henry II, you know, future Henry II of England, did their eyes sort of meet across a court and whatever. What do we know about it? You're doing your absolutely nothing face.
4: I'm doing my absolutely nothing face, yes. Um, we, we know a little more than absolutely nothing. We know that Henry and his father Geoffrey came to court just about at the point when it was apparent that Louis and Eleanor were going to be breaking up. They hadn't formally put in train the mechanism for the annulment, but she had had the second baby and the marriage was going nowhere. What happened, nobody knows. There's absolutely no account of it. All there is an account of is what happened between, uh, between Louis and Geoffrey and Henry. And there is a question mark raised by the fact that having played pretty tough about the Vexin, um, a disputed area between them and the French crown, they suddenly said, no, 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 it's fine. We will you know, we will play nice about this. So there is something lurking in the air which suggests that there may have been a suggestion perhaps that there might be a marriage, but we don't know. and There is no basis for hope that we will ever know more than we do.
3: But what we do know, certainly, is is where this portion of the story ends, which is 1153, a marriage between Henry, shortly to be Henry II of England, and Eleanor, Duchess of Aquitaine.
4: But, But again, you have to go back to Eleanor the Walking Title deed because, of course, as soon as she's divorced, she has these lands, she is a target, and in fact, on the journey after her annulment back into her lands... She is the object of two abduction attempts, so which just brings home how vulnerable she was. She had to marry. She had to put that plan in place. And who was she going to marry? Her family had been marrying into Anjou for generations. Henry was the obvious candidate. Doesn't mean there was anything between them other than politics.
3: However, in the first phase of their life together, oh, rather the Phase of their life that they did spend together. Well, this is part of the story we'll get on to. At least in terms of you know, the two sort of elemental aspects of, uh, of a medieval royal marriage, um, there does seem to be a measure of success. She brings the title deed, so to speak, mm-hmm. to Henry and, and, and helps thereby forge this great sort of federation of Plantagenet territories England, Anjou, Maine, Touraine, Normandy, Aquitaine. Huge continent empire is maybe not the right word, but creates this huge territory.
4: She uses the word empire.
3: She uses, okay, so empire is the right word in that case. Creates this this empire, reaching from the borders of Scotland or down to the Pyrenees. She also produces eventually seven children who grow to adulthood. This marriage seems, on the face of it, well, I'm, I'm rambling my way towards to be more successful. Can you, can you tell us more about her marriage with Henry? And is that is that a, a, just a superficial judgment or, or what?
4: It depends how you characterize success. Yes, it has a lot of the indicia of a successful marriage. And certainly in the first few months when she is touring with Henry, the way she's couching the language in her charters, dearly beloved husband and so forth, it sounds like she is pretty thrilled with what she's got. And... Why wouldn't she be? She has gone from a husband who was in military terms a catastrophe and who we have to say there are question marks over in the bedroom to somebody who is in military terms exceptionally talented and who is going to make her pregnant pretty much every time they meet. So you know, in terms of what appears to have been what she was looking for, somebody to mind her interests, somebody to give her a family, it looks great. And in the early years, Henry also appears to give her a degree of power because when she was married to Louis, there is absolutely no evidence that she exercised power at all. Whereas Henry allows her to be regent in England. He allows her to be regent even in Anjou um, because their lands are so vast. Although she's pregnant most of the time, they're together relatively little. He has to be in one area fighting fires. She has to be somewhere else minding the shop but it's working well, yes.
3: And do you see that as um, as evidence, in Henry's eyes at least, of Eleanor's personal competence as a politician, as a ruler?
4: Well, I think he, he was prepared to give her a try. And what you see is, it's actually quite characteristic of him, full stop, isn't it? You see him giving her, to start off with, a shot at being regent a shot at exercising power hedged round by his um, trusty Norman henchmen who have experience of the way he likes to do things, the way his father liked to do things. And yet, as time wears on, the amount of power Eleanor is given seems to slide away. Quite what brings that about, whether it is clashes about the way they run the empire, whether it's clashes about Beckett. Or whether it's matters as simple as on occasions when Eleanor is left in charge of an area, there's a need for military action and she has difficulty persuading people to act when she wants them to, persuading her, the male barons to act at her command and Henry needs to come. Who knows which of these it is, but over time Henry takes back more power just as he was to do with his sons, Well, I, I mean, I, I
3: was going to say, I mean, this is, this is sort of Henry all over it, isn't it? Is there anybody in his life ever that he doesn't end up falling out with at some point? You his, know, mother. In, his mother. <laughs> his mother. His um, mother. Which is in itself a certain type of man. Yes. That's probably beyond the scope of this podcast. Uh, let's, um, one question occurs to me, do we know anything about Eleanor and Beckett? You know, does she have a relationship with Thomas Beckett? Is, I mean, is, does she play any role in this famous story of, of, you know, the martyred archbishop?
4: Again, we know very little. The traditional story is that she hated Becket because Henry was so close to him until he wasn't. And it's been assumed, I think, that because um, Becket was that close to Henry, Eleanor must have felt that that somehow impeded her closeness to Henry. However, there isn't actually any evidence that she got on badly with Becket at all. She has a track record of dealing well with men of the church. She's close to Theobald of Beck, who was Beckett's predecessor as archbishop, who was Beckett's mentor. She gets on well with John of Salisbury, who, having left the Pope's employ, goes to work for Theobald and is with Becket really through most of the fight and right up until Beckett's death. There are a couple of occasions when you can see firstly Eleanor and the Empress Matilda trying to intercede on behalf of Beckett and another occasion when John of Salisbury tries to go on behalf of Beckett directly to Eleanor to get help. What I take from that is that it's more likely that Eleanor was slightly favourable to Beckett and was not entirely on side with Henry's views on this.
3: Let's get to um, the sort of the, the major, or the first major crisis point then in uh, Eleanor's life with Henry, you know, marriage to Henry, her, her role within the English kingdom rather than the French. 1173 to four, the great war, the war without love, you know, in which Henry's sons and and many other people across the Plantagenet empire rise up seemingly, you know, out of you know Beckett's I, that's true, but, uh, you know, it seems to be a spontaneous rising. And so the story goes, Eleanor's kind of, you know, the puppet master behind these and all these men are just her sort of marionettes dancing around and, and getting at her husband. And there's you know, rumours that she's jealous that he's got a lover, the fair Rosamond. What do we know?
4: Again, what we know is very little. At the time, there is a massive gap The nearest thing we have in time is a letter which Henry has sent by his pet archbishop telling her to come back to him. At this point, she is actually exercising power in Aquitaine on his behalf. And she has been there without any problem for some years. Um, But after the outbreak of the rebellion, Henry says, come back. That's it. At a later stage, various people say that Eleanor was in charge of the rebellion or plotted it with her sons, there's no evidence of that. The more reliable chroniclers say it is said or it is rumoured, which to me suggests that they don't believe it. And the timeline of the rebellion is all wrong. It starts with young Henry. It starts miles from where Eleanor is. And at the end of the day, when Eleanor and Henry had fallen out so badly he'd put her in prison and he was trying to divorce her, still never had a clear narrative about what it was she'd done.
3: So in that case, what can we take away about her role in the war of 1173 to 4? And following from that, what on earth got between them that was so bad that uh, from 1174 afterwards, she was one of the two people on which he took out his Mm. his vengeance most severely, the other being the King of Scots. Um, What did she do?
4: So Interestingly, the the main criticism really, which William of Tyre had for her in relation to the affair at Antioch, was essentially disloyalty. And I think that's what Henry would say that it was in um, in the rebellion. Eleanor is between a rock and a hard place. Her sons are rebelling against her husband. She has to pick a side. She picked her sons. And that I think was about it. She picked her sons. She enabled Richard and Geoffrey to go to Paris to join Louis, irony of ironies, and then to help in the rebellion. But in terms of active participation, my view is none. But the disloyalty and the enabling of them to participate was enough that Essentially, she had fundamentally betrayed Henry, as far as he was concerned.
3: So it's it's um, an act of inaction, if you like. It's 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 loyalty as inaction for the most part. Yes. Yeah. And um, and Henry, like the sort of mafia don, uh, will will never forget this. So, eleven seventy four, Eleanor goes. To jail, effectively. Yes. But, I mean, is, is she on sort of bread and water? <laughs> is she kind of shackled? Is she, you know, what do we, this always seems to be a big gap and and I can just picture many lines from many books about her saying, and then 15 years passed and we don't really know.
4: Yes. So we know very, very little. We have to pick it up through, effectively, the accounting records for her captivity and the pipe rolls. That's it. And the occasional mention of where other people are. We know that she is put into um, confinement, but the places she's put into confinement are principally Salisbury and Winchester. These are very nice places. They are, in her terms, modern residences with a lot of comfort. Uh, The amounts spent on her suggest that she was treated relatively well. The fact that she maintained her health suggests that she got plenty of opportunity to exercise, She probably was allowed to go riding under supervision and so forth. There is also evidence to believe that she probably had, um, at least in the early stages, her youngest daughter, Joanna, with her until Joanna was married. And she may well have had a small household of young people with her through most of her captivity.
3: So in other words, this doesn't sound so much like, you know, Eleanor kind of staring out the bars, you know, singing tra-la-la-la-la, poor me, and damn the fair Rosamond, But a little more like a sort of political uh, neutralisation, in a sense. A taking away from Aquitaine, you know, a a denial of a role, an active role in government such as, you know, she'd had Mm -hmm. one in the first place. But not actual mistreatment, just sort of sidelining.
4: Yes, very much so, and you can see towards the end of her captivity, she is actually brought out, and she is politically useful. So she's um, she's persuaded to either hand over power to Richard or take power back from Richard as it suits Henry. She's um, allowed to process around her dower properties so that Henry doesn't have to hand them over to young Henry's widow. But then, when the political situation becomes more fraught. She's whisked off back to Salisbury. So it, it comes and goes, the degree to which her freedom of movement is constrained. Um, but, yes, it is, it's sidelining her with as much severity as is necessary according to the political situation at the time.
3: In a way, is this not quite a backhanded compliment about her potential political power, her potential personal competence in the sense that you wouldn't bother if, if she wasn't um, potentially dangerous to you?
4: Well, I mean, absolutely it is. And this is this is one of the reasons why at one point she's sent back post-haste from France to England, because she and Richard are going to be opposing Henry in relation to the future of Aquitaine. And she is, she is from Aquitaine in a way that nobody else in the family is. And she has to be got as far away from it as possible so that she can't exercise power. But one of the things that I find a terrific irony about this is that by confining her in England, far away from her home power base, which is what really concerned Henry, he made her the member of the Plantagenet dynasty who had the deepest roots in England. So when you come to the end of Henry's reign, who is the person who has been resident first as regent shortly after her marriage, as regent again, and then non-stop for 15 years, pretty much. It's Eleanor. And so when Richard comes to power, Eleanor is already embedded in England and has established in the sense of power base, equal in England to that which she had in Aquitaine.
3: Now, before we get on to sort of Eleanor 2.0, her emergence (laughs) into Richard and and then subsequently John's uh, reigns, I want to talk about something that I found incredibly interesting um, in conversations with you about Eleanor in the past. And uh, and that's an image which we've, if we know anything about Eleanor, we've all seen a, a whole bunch of times mm. from the Radigant Chapel of what people have argued about. Uh, is that Eleanor being carted off to the, the imprisonment we've just been talking about? And You've got some incredibly interesting ideas about that. So, d- just describe very briefly this image that we're talking about, and tell me what you think it actually is.
4: Okay, so in Chinon, some distance from the castle at Chinon, um, near the chapel of a saint called Saint John of Chinon, is a chapel to Saint Radegund, who was a saint who was based in Poitiers, Eleanor's hometown. On the wall in that chapel in the 1960s was found this mural, this fresco, which portrays a kingly figure wearing a crown, um, leading a procession. Behind him there are two figures. One appears to be a young girl. One appears to be another person wearing a crown. That person is reaching a hand back to two young men, one of whom is um, holding a hawk. Is Eleanor one of these figures Um, A lot of people have tried to say that Eleanor is the second crowned figure um, or that she is the girl. There are a huge variety of theories about exactly who is portrayed within the Plantagenet family. Everybody has, since the discovery of the mural, said it's got to be the Plantagenets. They're dressed as the Plantagenets. They're in the Plantagenet hometown, and they're wearing clothes which look like the portrayal of Geoffrey LaBelle and so forth. The problem is, it's a very bad fit. What on earth is a secular portrayal of a Plantagenet family doing in a chapel to St. Radigand, 20 minutes walk from the castle? My own view is that, however lovely it would be to say that this is a portrayal of Eleanor, and I really wanted to believe it was, I've come to the view that it was, in fact, part of a series of frescoes which shows the life of St. Radigand, whose chapel it is, which kind of fits. And it would show the interaction between St. Radigand and St. John of Chinon, who assisted her in her vacation. Um, But it essentially then shows King Clothair, who was her rather nasty husband, um, taking her into captivity. Now, that doesn't mean there isn't a resonance for Eleanor, because St. Radigand became the patron saint of prisoners. Uh, She was a princess who was married to a man who treated her badly and who effectively kept her in imprisonment. She escaped imprisonment and uh, had a wonderful life after she separated from him. And one can see the parallels for Eleanor. So my own view is that this is a picture which Eleanor commissioned to honour St. Radigan but which had great resonances for her and indeed for Richard.
3: So pretty much every book or pamphlet about Eleanor that's had this picture of her sort of waving goodbye <laughs> or whatever now has to be rewritten. I mean, this is this is serious, you know, Eleanor revelation.
4: Well, yes. Um, I mean, there, there's been a, a degree of disagreement about whether that is Eleanor or whether the uncrowned figure is Eleanor. But, yes, everybody has just assumed it must be the Plantagenets because they're dressed that way. And, and yet, I think they're wrong. And so. yeah,
3: But... Does that mean we don't have any images of Eleanor?
4: No, it doesn't mean we don't have any
3: images. Well, come of on Eleanor. then, tell us tell, okay. us. tell us, tell us, tell us. So,
4: what we've got, dead sure and certain, we've got a picture in a window of the cathedral at Poitiers, yep. which Eleanor and Henry commissioned, but probably Eleanor because she has put herself on the right hand side in the commission of position of power. She's a bit bigger than Henry. We've got the tomb image, which she will have commissioned, which she will have authorised. The depiction. Those two are absolutely copper-bottomed. We can't, I think, take the Radigan mural anymore. But a couple of years ago, a connection was made between a book called the Fecamp Psalter, which is a psalter which was made in the Abbey of Fecamp, which is within Henry's lands, Um, It's a really interesting psalter, which has got this unusual feature, which is a female donor portrait. So opposite the initial that starts the psalms, the Beatus page, there is a picture of a woman. She's an elderly woman, by the looks of her, kneeling in a prayerful position. It's an incredibly richly decorated psalter. There's only one psalter like it um, from around that era. Interesting thing, it was commissioned by Eleanor's daughter, Matilda at about the same time. And this was also a time when Eleanor and Matilda had an opportunity to meet. And my strong view is that the Fekamp Salter is a commission by Eleanor and that the person who is portrayed on the donor page is Eleanor herself. And that's why that's the picture on the cover of my book.
3: <laughs> Which is a fantastic book. And, and I think there can be no... More appropriate image of how it overturns or re-examines or, or, or forensically questions all that we think we know we know about Eleanor than this this new image of her on the cover.
4: And it's it's beautiful actually that this should um, come to the fore at this point when really one's coming to the view that Eleanor didn't exercise a huge amount of power as a younger woman, but came very much into her own in her older years. And here is a picture of her at that age, um, really resonating with what her interests are, resonating with her family, her interest in the church, and her ability to exercise huge patronage. It's the most glorious, um, beautifully decorated book. And uh, it appears that it was very dear to her.
3: Well, it makes it a beautiful cover for your own um, wonderful book. Now, just finish the story. We've got five minutes. So finish the story off for us. You know, Henry dies. Eleanor's released from her captivity, such as as it was. Um, What role does she then play, you know, in the last phase of her life, uh, when two of her sons, first Richard, the first Richard the Lionheart, and secondly, young John, bad King John, come Mm. to the throne? Because this is the last period of her life. How was her role defined, characterised? How did she see it? How did she uh, wield uh, power in this period?
4: She continued to call herself Queen of England. She is never referred to as the regent. She is never appointed as the regent. She is simply the queen. From the moment that Henry dies, she effectively emerges like this glorious um, phoenix rising from the ashes, and nobody seems to have any hesitation about her ability to exercise power or her right to exercise power. There's a description of her going about with a queenly court. She arranges Richard's coronation. She then helps him to organise for crusade. She, When he disappears off on crusade, she organises um, his marriage to Berengaria of Navarre, She goes to Navarre, picks Berengaria up, takes Berengaria over the Alps in the depths of winter. Eleanor, by this stage, is in her 70s, takes takes Berengaria down all the way to the bottom of Italy uh, to enable her to meet up with Richard, and then simply turns around and comes back because she's got too much to do at home. Because... England won't govern itself, so she waves Richard off and then she takes care of business at home, trying to fend off John's attempts together with Philip of France to try and take over England. She is exercising power as somebody who controls the defences of the country and then, of course, when Richard manages to get himself captured on the way back from crusade, she organises his ransom um, At the same time, still maintaining the defences of the kingdom so that Richard has a kingdom to come home to. She goes to Germany to help finalise the negotiations for the payment of the ransom and comes home with Richard. And only then does she get a bit of peace. Um, She has a short period of retirement in Fontreveau. And that is rudely interrupted, of course, by the news that Richard is dying. So she rushes to Richard's side. He effectively dies in her arms. She then controls the transition of power. There is a question, does power go to her grandson, Arthur, or to her son, John? And all the evidence points toward it really being a lot of her influence that means that it is John who succeeds. And she then comes out of retirement, does a massive tour around her lands to ensure that John succeeds peacefully, and that all her vassals are online and prepared to recognise him. And then she has another small retirement, and then when John is in extremis and needs an alliance with France, she goes to Castile and fetches a bride who is her granddaughter from her daughter Leonor and brings her back over to marry to Philip. So um, she is... Constantly busy supporting her sons, exercising power, really right until her very latest years.
3: And she dies in the year 1204. Yeah. I suddenly doubted myself. How I was that. <laughs> Having spent some of the, the, the hour we've been talking, and particularly the early periods in, in Eleanor's life, saying quite a lot, um, we're not quite sure, we don't quite know. This latter period of her life, we seem to know rather more about. And, and these achievements you've been so eloquently describing and which are brilliantly described in your book aren't in any doubt right?
4: No we've got we've got charters you know left right and centre we can trace her movements really quite clearly for the entire period after Henry dies. We know exactly to whom she's granting what I mean not all of them but Comparatively, a huge number. We have letters that she wrote. Even in her last year, there's this wonderful letter that she wrote to one of her cousins, effectively emotionally blackmailing him to support John. Uh, so, yes, we see her very clearly towards the end of her life. And we see grants to Fontrevaux and her support to her daughter, Joanna, who also came to her um, to die, effectively, after her marriage um, went badly wrong, so we see Eleanor in all her different roles as mother, as politician, as wielder of power, as patron. All of it comes together in her final years into this rather wonderful flowering.
3: And and do you think that in that she she merits this incredible reputation she's had over the centuries since her death? I mean are we going to myth-bust so far that we say Eleanor of Aquitaine was you know, not as marvellous as everyone thinks? Because it strikes me that everything you've just described, had that been the only thing we knew about it, had that been the only thing she'd ever done, would still be in the most extraordinary career as a power broker, as a sort of power behind two thrones, let alone everything that comes before.
4: Yes and no. I mean, it is remarkable, but it's only remarkable so-so in the sense that the exercise of power by widows was by no means unusual. It's just because she was the widow of Henry II, it's a lot of power that she had available to her to wield. And she does it in under extreme challenge and with great success. So I think the degree of her success, the degree of her sure-footedness, the degree of her subtlety and assurance is remarkable. I also think the way that she survived and flourished some of the most terrible blows imaginable when you think of the number of children she lost and in what terrible circumstances. Her imprisonment, all the physical challenges she'd faced throughout her life, to come through all of that and still be sort of vibrantly exerting power, doing all of these things, punching well above the weight of most, most men in their prime is a remarkable thing.
3: You've spent a little while working on this book.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Have you enjoyed spending this time in Eleanor's company?
4: Oh, I've hugely enjoyed spending time in her company. I always wanted to get the story straight in my mind. I thought I knew what I would find, and I did think I would find her quite intimidatingly exceptional. What i found is somebody who is exceptional in the sense of an exceptional life and some exceptional achievements, but somebody who is also a very, very, comes across as a very warm person with a lot of real connections to people that she valued very, very strongly and that she gave support to throughout her life. And she comes across as a much nicer person than I had anticipated, which is a lovely thing to find
3: over the last few months since you very kindly let me um, read a manuscript of your book I have been telling anyone who'll listen that <laughs> of the great pile of biographies that uh, history has produced of Eleanor of Aquitaine we now have what I think is the definitive one and the most pleasurable enjoyable and stimulating to read it's a brilliant book and it's been a privilege talking to you about thank you so Sarah much Sarah thank you very much
0: that was Sarah Cockrell Sarah's book, Eleanor of Aquitaine, Queen of France and England, Mother of Empires, is out now, published by Amberley. You can also read a piece by Sarah exploding some of the myths that surround Eleanor in the Christmas issue of BBC History magazine, which is out now and also includes articles on the fall of Roman Britain, the secrets of war leadership and unusual Christmas traditions. Dan Jones's latest book is Crusaders, an epic history of the wars for the Holy Lands, which was published back in September by Head of Zeus. And if medieval history is your thing, then you may well be interested in our events, which are two days themed around medieval life and death, taking place in York and London next spring. Head to historyextra.com forward slash events for more details. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us again on Monday when Asa Bennett will be discussing the Roman era.